It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Shares for beginners. People sold what they could versus what they should have sold because they couldn't sell the shit they should have sold, right? And so they sold what they could. So these big Americana blue chip names got absolutely hammered. And so thus the, the Dow fell, you know, 22.5%. The S&P, the Dow, right? It was horrendous. I'll never forget it. As I tell the story, I can feel myself in the room. I can feel the phones ringing. I can feel the tension in the place. It was really, it was unbelievable. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Last episode, we heard Kenny Polcari reminiscing about the beginning of his career on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and the great bull market of the Reagan years that led up to the Black Monday crash of 1987. So, um... The markets had rallied strongly you know, in the five years leading up to 1987. Over the summer of 1987, the global economy started to stumble a little bit. Macro data points in the U.S. started to get a little bit weak. Macro data points around the world were starting to kind of get weak. But remember... The news didn't travel then the way it travels today, right? Something happens in Asia and the world knows about it in 30 seconds. Then the only way you knew what happened in Asia or what happened in America, what happened in Europe or what happened in Australia was the next day when you picked up the newspaper because somebody had written a story about it, right? There had been an acceleration though, because I believe at that stage, computerization had started. Previously, computers were just like glorified databases, weren't they? They You were just entering information, but then they became involved in the actual trading. Well, they became involved in terms of not in trading, but in delivering order flow. So instead of now calling down to say, buy 5,000 Coca-Cola, they could put the order to the computer and send the order via the computer and it would spit out on the floor. I'd have to rip the ticket off the printer, clock it, and it was still physically executed. The computers were not executing yet, right? But what had also happened during 85, 86, uh, and into 87, was there was this new industry that was born. Part of it was about advancements in technology and all that stuff, but it was quantitative analysis, right? It was all about using computers to discern data, to collect data, to pull the data apart, to try to understand what the data was. And it was, you know, it was funny because it was in the generation behind me, right? I mean, the most computer work I ever did when I was in college in 1982 was, I don't know if you guys ever did it, I'm sure you did, was, you know, those punch cards, you had to put the punch cards and then you had to feed the punch cards into the computer, and right? That was my experience with, with computers. And how many kilobytes of information did they hold? I can't remember the actual thing. <laughs> I don't even know, but you, know, you get some people sitting there going, what the hell are they talking about? That was true, right? That was true. You had, they had the punch cards. And you had stacks of punch cards in order to do one function, right? Anyway, whatever. But the this quantitative analysis 
industry had been making its way. And all of a sudden it was a study in college and people were, they called themselves quants. And you know, what the hell was a quant, right? Well, a quant was really, was a computer nerd. Really what they were, they were, they were just computer geeks, right? And so what this group of quants had designed and developed was this thing called portfolio insurance. And portfolio insurance is exactly what it sounds like. It's an insurance product that guards you against a loss. The same way life insurance or disability insurance or health insurance guards you against a catastrophe. Portfolio insurance was a product that was design using all these supercomputers at the time. They were called supercomputers. And they would feed all this data into the computers. They'd feed macro data. They'd feed earnings data. They'd feed global macro data, right? Data from around the world. And this product was supposed to take all this data, collect it, and then tear it apart and discern it and be able to tell you what was going to happen, right? And so this product was designed and it was called portfolio insurance. And they sold this product to institutions, to money managers and hedge funds, all that stuff, asset managers, mutual funds, as a way to protect these massive gains that these fund managers had in their portfolios. And so everybody bought this product, hoping that they would never have to use it. But it was this new, it represented the future, right? It was computerized and it was smart. It was going to tell you what to do and it was going to protect you. You were never going to lose a penny and all that crap, right? And so they sold it around the world and asset managers around the world. And so as the summer came and the global economy started to stutter, as we moved into, you know, the markets came under some pressure and then they, they'd back off a little bit and then they'd rally, they'd back off and they were churning. And as we moved into the fall, the global economy got a little bit weaker. But again, because they weren't as connected as they are today, because there was no internet, no Twitter, no Facebook, no LinkedIn, none of that stuff, the news moved around the world slowly. It moved around via newspapers and when people would talk to each other on the phone, but certainly not the way it did today. And so as we moved into October, the U.S. stock market started to get a little bit more unsettled because the U.S. data was becoming more unsettled. The economy was slowing down and the macro data was starting to turn negative. And so the economy was becoming unsettled as investors started to kind of reevaluate valuations in the market and prices that were willing to pay for stocks, all that stuff. And it got more and more um, unnerving. And as we moved into that third week of October, it was Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, the 14th, 15th, and 16th of October, because I'll never forget it. But the markets on Wednesday came under pressure and the market ended on, the, on its lows for the day. Now, that's always a negative sign. When the market trades lower and ends on the lows of the day, it usually sets itself up for a test lower the next day. And so that's exactly what it did. On Thursday, the markets were weak from Wednesday. They test, they opened, they got weak, they traded down, they rallied a little bit, they traded down, and they closed on the lows again on Thursday, which then set us up for potentially another down day on Friday. And so on Friday, the same thing happened, right? And now the news started to get a little bit more concerning. You'd pick up the paper and they talk about, you know, the Dow was down two days in a row. Volume was building. It was under more pressure. And so the story became negative, right? Um, and so on Friday, the same thing happened. The markets opened and started, the market got weaker and it closed on the low of the day. But it closed on the low of the day on accelerated volume. Now, I was 26 years old at the time. I really knew nothing still. I knew nothing, right? Like I said, my daughter had just been born. She was six months old. My wife and I had just bought a house. And by the way, we had a 17.5% mortgage for everyone out there that thinks that it's never possible. And I went home that night 
And I walked in the house. And because I told you my wife had been a member of the exchange, I could go home. And when I talked about something that happened at work, she knew exactly what I meant. She could picture it. She could feel it. She could see it. And so I said to her, you know, something doesn't feel right to me. I don't know what it is, but I got this feeling in my stomach. It just doesn't feel right. Okay, whatever. That was Friday night. So uh, it was October. So we did the whole pumpkin thing. We went and got pumpkins. And it was my daughter's first Halloween. And, you know, all that break the leaves and jump in the pile and all that stuff. And on Sunday night, I go to bed, nine o'clock. Nine o'clock in New York on Sunday night is 9 a.m. Monday morning on your side of the world, essentially, right? Asia's 12 hours ahead, basically, right? You guys are 14 hours, but essentially, you know what I mean. I'm going to bed and you guys are just waking up. And so nine o'clock Sunday night, I go to bed. What do I know from anything, right? There's nothing in the news. You're not watching CNBC or CNN or cable news network. That didn't really exist. And so, um, I go to bed. Now, meanwhile, what had happened over the weekend was that these portfolio insurance guys had taken all this data, all the negativity that had happened around the world all week, and they fed it into the supercomputer over the weekend. And guess what the computer did finally? It spit out a message. And the message was, in order to protect your portfolio, you need to sell X percent, raise the cash, and then put the cash over here. Don't reinvest it. Keep the bundle of cash here because as the market gets weaker, then you're going to get the signal to put all that cash to work and you're going to buy everything. Okay, great. Well, who were the first ones to get the message? Everyone on your side of the world, right? Asia were the first ones because Sunday night, it's Monday morning. So you guys are the first ones to start trading. So anybody who bought that particular portfolio insurance, and they sold it around the world, everybody got the same message. The message was you needed to sell 2% of your portfolio and then put the cash aside. Well, okay, that's great. You're going to sell 2%. 2% doesn't sound like a lot. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it is. But if you're somebody that manages 100 million, 2% is one number. But if you've got a billion dollars under management, 2% is a very different number. It's still 2%. It's just a bigger number, right? And so you guys got the first message and you guys were told to sell 2% of your portfolios. And so, as you might remember, Asian markets started the trading day and they came under assault. Now, it wasn't a complete disaster, but they did come under assault. And then what the portfolio insurance guys did when they saw what happened, what was happening in Asia, how those markets come out, they took the Asian data from Monday and they refed it into the computer, which only sent out a more negative signal. And then who's next to trade is Europe. As the sun moves from Asia to Europe. It's a feedback loop. It's a feedback loop. And so now the European investors got a message to sell 3% of their portfolio because of what had happened in Asia. The Asian markets had broken down so much that now Europeans had to sell a bigger percentage. So do you see what happened now? You guys were to sell two. Now they get to sell 3%. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So now this is all happening. I'm sound asleep cozy in my bed, right? Four o'clock wakes up. The alarm goes off. I take a shower. I get dressed. I shave. I go get my coffee. I buy the Wall Street Journal. What's the Wall Street Journal telling me? It's telling me what happened on Friday 
Meanwhile, Monday's already gone in Asia. It's already Monday morning in Europe, and I'm reading about what happened on Friday. Meanwhile, Asia had melted down, and Europe was was in the process of starting to melt down. And my paper says, oh, you know, markets are in a little bit of pressure, blah, blah. What the hell did I know? I knew nothing about what was happening in the world. So I get to work. I get to work at 7 o'clock in the morning. I do my thing. I pull up in the drawer. I pull out all my training tickets. I do all the organizing like I would do every day. Right, organize the tickets, get everything lined up. All of a sudden, the phone rings. It's seven o'clock in the morning. Now, the phone never rang at seven o'clock in the morning unless somebody died, right? Because there was nothing going on at seven o'clock in the morning. And so the phone rings at seven o'clock in the morning. It was a very dear friend of mine who was a trader for his Boston. And I pick up the phone and I go, Hello. And he goes, Bro, do you have any idea what's going on? I go, No. What's going on? What did I miss? I mean, yeah, the sun is up. It's a nice day. I mean, what did I miss? What's going on? He said, Dude, and he starts to explain to me what had happened in Asia because this guy worked on the first Boston trading desk. So he was upstairs. So he had access to his offices in Europe and his offices in Asia. And so they're telling him over the phone what had happened. Asia had melted down. Europe was now undergoing uh, the markets were beginning to melt down. And so he's telling me, he's explaining to me what happened. And he said to me, it's going to be a bloodbath. In New York today. Uh, meanwhile, I was 26. I didn't know how to spell bloodbath, never mind understand what it even meant, right? And so, um, and so we were talking about it. And now I started to get nervous going, oh my God, like, oh, uh, like I didn't know what to do first because how do you prepare for a bloodbath, right? Yeah, you just sit there waiting. And what ended up happening was as Europe started to melt down. Sorry, if I can just interrupt for a moment, wouldn't you be buying put options? Well, you might be buying put options, but don't forget, the options market had really just started to come into its own, right? It wasn't the way it is today, right? There were people, I'm sure, that were buying put options. But the fact is that the market started to melt down. And so as you know, we got to 8 o'clock, we got to 8.30, suddenly the phone started to ring and people were entering orders. Now, people never really entered orders till 9 o'clock, 10 after 9, because the market didn't open till 9.30. Suddenly at 8 o'clock and 8.15, they're entering orders. Sell 50,000 of this, sell 100,000 of that. Well, what do you sell 100,000? You know, sell 100,000 IBM. That's a big order, right? Sell 200,000 Exxon Mobil. That's a big order too, right? At the market, no price, just sell them at the market. And so what ended up happening was as we got closer to nine o'clock, everybody had sell orders because then what happened was these portfolio insurance guys then ran the European data through the computer. And now the Americans, the asset managers in America were told, you need to sell 5% of your portfolio. So do you see what happened there? The percentage is just exponentially increased, right? In fact, it was a bloodbath as you, well, Some of your listeners may not recognize that, but the U.S. markets were the worst performers that day. We lost 22.5% of the value of our market in six and a half hours. And then what happened was it just fed on itself, right? Selling, beget more selling, beget more selling, and the buyers weren't going to stand there, so the buyers bid way low. The spreads in the stock were like this because by widening the spread, they tried to slow it down. They tried to make everybody wait. Stop. Think about this for a minute. But what happened was every time you went back to the phone to call the customer to say, listen, you sold 10000 at $50. You sold, you sold another 5000 at 49 and a half. You sold 3000 at 49 and a quarter. You sold 10000 at 49 They were like, you were selling stock at point ranges, right? And then you'd say to them, do you want me to stop? Do you want me to keep going? And the people on the other end of the phone would be screaming, sell the stock, sell the stock, sell the stock. Okay, but when you went out to the crowd, you weren't the only seller. There were 10 people trying to sell the stock. There were no buyers. So who were you going to sell it to was the point, right? And so think about this for a minute. Johnson & Johnson 
was a $96 stock on Friday night, October 16th. It closed at 96 and change. Johnson & Johnson makes baby powder and baby oil and Q-tips, right? That's what they do. And so by Monday night, Johnson & Johnson closed at 45 and a half. Johnson & Johnson lost 50% of its value in six and a half hours. And why? Because it was a big, highly capitalized stock that if you had to sell it, you could try to sell them. It was ugly, but you couldn't sell Bank of Hawaii. That thing was not a highly capitalized stock. That thing would trade 5,000 shares a day. Johnson & Johnson would trade lots of stock because it was a highly capitalized thing. So people sold what they could versus what they should have sold because they couldn't sell the shit they should have sold, right? And so they sold what they could. So these big Americana blue chip names got absolutely hammered. And so thus the the Dow fell, you know, 22.5%. The S&P, the Dow, right? It was horrendous. I'll never forget it. Again, as I tell the story, I can feel myself in the room. I can feel the phones ringing. I can feel the tension in the the place. It was was really, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. And we were there that night until, you know, eight or nine o'clock at night, just writing reports and confirming trades because there were such swings in prices. I started selling Johnson & Johnson at, you know, $92, and I sold it all the way down to $45. And then you had to confirm with the other side. You know, I sold it to you at $90. You better know me because now it's trading at $45, right? So you bought it from me at $90. Oh, by the way, I sold it to this guy at $86. I sold it to you at $82, right? You had to confirm all those trades. I'm 60 years old now. The guys who were 60 then, on that day, I'll never forget the looks on their faces was just sheer panic. Guys who had spent their whole life working and saving and their money was invested. And these guys were all invested in the market, right? I mean, their accounts were invested in stocks because that's what they knew. Most of them, a lot of them felt like they'd gotten wiped out. A whole lifetime of work had gotten wiped out, right? I'll never forget it. It was an amazing day. It was one of the most incredible days of my career there. But it was out of that event that were born things like circuit breakers, which didn't exist, right? Circuit breakers are those regulations now that prevent the market from falling like that all at one point. Like if the market today drops, if the S&P drops 7%, trading will be halted for an hour. It gives everyone a chance to relax, breathe, assess what's going on. Then the market will reopen. It won't prevent it from falling again. If it falls another 7%, the market will close for two hours. Give everyone a chance. Then on that on that day, there was no break. So the market just kept trading lower. It would stop for a minute. Stop meaning it would just churn and trade lower again. It would churn. And I'll never forget Dick Grasso on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. There was a, along one of the edges. It was like the headquarters, right? And Dick Grasso had a direct line to the Fed. He had a direct line to all the five families, right? Morgan Stanley, uh, Merrill Lynch, Goldman Sachs, right? He could call the CEOs of any one of those big major U.S. investment banks, as well as the Fed. And I'll never forget, he stood there the whole day, and it was just back and forth on the phone, because people were trying to figure out, what do we do? Because they could have stopped trading. The Fed could have halted trading. They could have said to Dick Rasso, stop trading. But the the discussion was, if we do that, we'll end up actually causing even more panic because it'll be like the run on the bank, right? All of a sudden, you say to somebody, you can't get your money, right? We're closing the door. You can't get your money. And so they decided not to stop trading, and the market continued to spin out of control. And by the end of the day, we lost you know 22.5%. I mean, that's one of the things about, uh, really, it's a lesson about psychology, how to second, second-guess psychology as well from the... The regulators. That's funny when you say that because 
the psychology that day was driven by computers, right? Because the computer is the one that spit out the order. You need to sell 5% of your portfolio. It didn't care. It was unemotional. It wasn't making an emotional decision. It just said, this is what you have to do. Well, then the portfolio managers had to figure out, okay, how am I going to raise 5%? What do I have to sell to raise 5%? Because it didn't tell you what you had to sell. It just said, you need to raise 5%. You figure it out. Sell what you have to, but you need to raise 5% cash. And so when the place started to implode and really melt down, it was like somebody said, wait a minute, wait, 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 this is out of control. Like we should take a breath and we should say, what the hell are we doing? But this portfolio insurance thing was so new. And because it was the future, right? It was this big high speed computer and it was emotionless. And it told you what you needed to do that people, it was like they took the brains out of their head and they just did what they were told to do. Versus taking a step back and go, wait, wait, wait. Johnson & Johnson's trading at $45. It lost 50% of its value for what reason? Right? Like it wasn't making sense. But because the frenzy fed on itself, and it's a, absolutely a study in psychology because, like I said, it was like people took the brains out of their head. Now, for me, I would go back and I'd call you up and I'd say, listen, are you sure you want me to keep selling this? Because I'm saying to you, dude, this thing is down 30 points. What? Don't you think I should back off? And the language, the way that they would talk to me as if I was the idiot, you know, they would say, sell the goddamn stock, just sell it. O okay, okay. And so you'd go out there, you'd sell the stock. You'd sell it down another 10 points. And you'd go back to the phone and you'd go, okay, I just sold it down another 10 points. Well, what are you doing in here? Go sell more stock. Okay. And so you went out, you kept selling stock. I mean, it was, it was actually, it was in retrospect, it was nuts. It was nuts, but it was what it was, right? But that was really the beginning of automation and computerization and how computers were going to change the face of how the markets operate. And so out of that event was born the things like circuit breakers and other regulatory actions in order to try to calm the markets and the and the markets recovered it took it took a good two or three months because there was so much internal damage done to the market that it whipped around for weeks after you know it would be up one day it would be up 300 points and it would be down 200 points it would be up 100 points it would be down 50 points until it finally settled in and it was quite a quite a quick recovery as well wasn't it yeah, it was a relatively quick recovery for the most part. And then we were, you know, then we get into the 90s. And the 90s was all about this tech revolution, right? That all of a sudden, this is where technology really started to kind of... And suddenly there's new names on the board, huh? Online, new names on board. But technology was really changing the face of other industries. And in the financial services industry, it was changing the face of how the back office worked, right? They were automating the functions like clearing and settlement and... Um, in the exchange of money, right? That was being automated. But on the front end, where the broker actually represented the institution at the point of sale, it was much slower to react. The role that computers were playing there was in order delivery, not in order execution, just in order delivery. And then after they got comfortable with the order delivery, then they started to execute small orders, up to 300 shares on what you call the DOT system, right? Which was DOT stood for direct order turnaround. And the guy upstairs could send an order up to 300 shares, bypass the broker, go directly to the point of sale at the specialist. The specialist with the orders would print out behind the specialist post. He'd have to rip them off and then represent that order in the crowd. And then it didn't execute automatically. He still had to do it. 
but the orders got sent directly to the specialist bypassing the broker. And that was really the beginning of what would ultimately forever change the way stocks were traded and all that stuff. And then, so the 90s came and it was this massive tech revolution and what was happening. Just if I could just put another bit of context here, against this is the backdrop of a macro recession as well. The late 80s and the early 90s was it the last really big. Well, sorry, no, it's not the last big recession, but it was a pretty serious recession at the time. Yeah, it was, and it was all participated around the crash of '87 because when the when the economic data started to get weak, the recession then was born out of that, and it, and it lasted into uh, the early 90s, right? But the markets did recover, and uh, then it was all about the technology boom, and it was all about this thing called Y2K. Another thing that many of your listeners may not they may understand what Y2K is or they've heard it, but they don't really know what it was like to live in that time. Because don't you remember the stories about how the world was going to, you know, everything was going to shut off when we turned the century from 99 to 00 because of the way uh, the, the- The clocks and the computers. Right. Well, because the dates were written in two decimal places. So it was 1231.99, right? And then when we flipped to 1100, the computers then thought we were going backwards and not forwards, and then everything was going to fail. GPS systems were going to fail. Satellites were going to fall out of the sky. Planes were going to fall out of the sky. No electricity, no water. Do you remember that? I mean, it was really, it was, I mean, the way they described it leading, you know, in the mid nineties, it was like Armageddon was coming. Right. And so it was this, it was this real issue. And so for financial markets, it was a real issue, right? Because you had to make sure that the global financial markets were going to be able to make it through this. Now, look, here was the funny part about it. Asia and Europe had already gone much more automated than the United States was, right? They did it in the late eighties and early nineties, and they were already trading electronically in Asia and Europe. We were still doing it face to face, pen to paper, human to human, right? But now it was 93, 94, and turn of the century was only seven years away. And you think, oh, seven years is a long time. Seven years is not a long time when you have to redesign and rewrite the rules and write computer programs to route order flow, to execute order flow, right? You couldn't do it. And because we traded in eighths of a dollar, we weren't trading in decimals, we were trading eighths of a dollar, that the the fraction is what really kept kind of calm in the markets because you could widen the market and everyone would slow down, right? You weren't going to pay up a half a buck. You're going to stop and think before you did that, right? And so um, you couldn't automate that process in a fractional environment. And so we had to consider, okay, how are we going to do this? And you had to decimalize, right? But in order to decimalize, then you had to start rewriting all the rules. Uh, you had to start writing computer programs that could interpret and execute and represent and you know try to do that in seven years and then hope you had it all done before the world fell apart was not going to happen. And this was also happening with airlines and rail. And it was happening <laughs> everywhere, logistics. everywhere. If I can just give you a little story from my end here. Go ahead. At the time, I was a, um, a music producer and I was in charge of the music for the fireworks. So the night when we flipped over from 1999 to the year 2000, we had everything set up for the fireworks, the music. You got lines going everywhere out to the uh, speakers around Sydney Harbour. We've got um, computer systems in place, which is going to run the fireworks and going to set them off at all the right time. You can imagine what we were feeling as the, the, the countdown was ticking down because, you know, we'd been fed all those stories about we were going to be hitting Armageddon. And so we were kind of like one of the first parts of the world that we're going to be hitting that Y2K moment. Yeah, that's right. Armageddon, that's what it was. And you guys were going to hit it first. Everything worked. <laughs> yeah. And so and so, what we did in this country was we continued to trade face-to-face, pen-to-paper as we moved through the turn of the century. But 
all in the backdrop. They were writing all these computer programs. They were preparing post the turn of the century because here was the deal. There was kind of a method to this madness because if the world had failed, when the clock turned, if suddenly things didn't work and, um, you know, you guys on your side of the world and in Europe, if those financial markets had failed, the U.S., we were still doing it face to face, pen to paper. So we would not have failed because we could go to work and we could trade face to face. Right. But it was soon after the turn of the century when obviously it was clear that the world didn't fall apart and all that stuff is that the push then came on for the U.S. to automate and update and modernize its markets. It was worthwhile waiting. Also, during the late 90s, we had the tech boom as well. So markets were, you know, buying anything with a dot com in that's name. Anything with a dot com. That was, you know, 98, 99, 2000. Yeah. And, and then that imploded. But look, remember that all the dot com names traded on NASDAQ. They didn't trade on the New York Stock Exchange because they didn't meet the requirements to trade in the New York. So while it was an exciting time, I, because I worked on the New York Stock Exchange, I wasn't trading the dot com names because they were trading on NASDAQ. That was the automated market. But yes, it infected because that psyche about the NASDAQ, because the NASDAQ, you remember, because of that, the NASDAQ went crazy, traded up to, you know, 5,500, I think, in early 2000 before it crashed all the way down to 1760, I think was the low by 2001, right? But yes, that that excitement did infect the broader market, meaning New York Stock Exchange. The dot-coms didn't trade there. But one way or the other, uh, we went through that turn of the century. And then you know, once it, we realized it wasn't going to blow up, then we started to make the move to introduce technology, introduce decimalization, and modernize the markets. And really, that was that was the beginning of what would be the end of what we knew in terms of how the markets functioned in this country, right? Because once you introduce decimalization, then they immediately introduced automation. Automation, not only in terms of order delivery, but order execution, automated execution. So they were eliminating the role of the broker, right? Now, it took some time because you couldn't suddenly just start executing 100 and 200,000 share orders in a computer because no one really trusted it. But it was making its way. Right, you could see it. In February of 2000, we started the process of converting fractions to decimals, right? And so they had to do it in waves. You couldn't just take all 5,000 stocks that traded in America, NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange stocks, and on Monday trade them in fractions, on Tuesday trade them in decimals, because it was going to overwhelm the system and no one really knew if we could handle it and the number of prices, because now there's 99 prices. Between $1 and $2 is a penny, two pennies, three pennies, all up to 99 cents. And so there were so many more prices, and so you had to do it in waves. And so, you know, we converted all the stocks from A to D. We converted those from fractions to decimals. We let them run for three or four weeks. Once we were sure that it was okay, then the next set of stocks, and it took six months to get through the whole alphabet. And so really, that was another really crazy time when you think about what was happening and living through that. You know, when I walked into IBM, that was trading in fractions. But when I walked into Bank of America, that was trading in decimals. And you had to change the way you thought because stocks in a decimal environment traded one way, but stocks in a fractional environment traded another way. And so for six months, you're running back and forth between fractions and decimals, fractions and decimals. It was really, again, that was it was an incredible <laughs> time. And when I think back about it, it was an incredible time to be alive and it was an incredible time to live through it. And then we we finished converting to complete decimals by November of 2000. Uh, and then 2001 came and the markets continued to evolve. And then 9-11 happened. 
Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 